Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Well, g'day, City on a Hill. So glad that you could join us today in what has proven to be not the weekend that we expected, being in lockdown at 5.0. Uh, when you rent a venue, uh, as much as we love Phoenix Park Community Centre, Given the lateness of the announcement, it did mean that we weren't able to get in there and obviously can't broadcast from there. And so here we are in my living room. Uh, this Sunday doesn't look anything like 
what I expected it to look like on Wednesday or Thursday. And I'm sure you've got plans uh, that have had to be curtailed because of this lockdown as well. Uh, Jules and I and the family actually were, were planning to go on holiday uh, this coming week. We'll see how that goes. Uh, it's in the Lord's hands at the moment. Um, but let's now uh, ready ourselves for continuing our Exodus series in Exodus 24. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, still shaken from uh, the speed at which we find ourselves back uh, where we had hoped not to be back in, in a lockdown. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That our circumstances change, our outlook on the coming weeks changes, uh, you stay the same. And so please be with us and give us a gift today through your word. Show us more of yourself, we pray. And so use me to do it. Use whatever medium people are tuning in on to do it. Uh, and would you just bless our hearts and our uh, relationship with you through this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we dive back into Exodus, we come now to Exodus chapter 24. And I hope you've seen to this point just how paradigmatic, it's a cool word, it has been for our own walk with Jesus and relationship with God today. Uh, in recent weeks, Jules and I were able to get in a movie uh, in a rare day that we had uh, away from the kids because the kids were at a holiday program in the school holidays. Uh, and so we went to go and see A Quiet Place 2. Now that is the kind of movie, the title at least, that you want to go see. When you are recovering from parenting a five-year-old and a two-year-old, you need a quiet place. You know, just, a, just a movie you can relax, let your shoulders down, nestle back into the chair. Well, A Quiet Place isn't at all that movie. Uh, we knew what we were getting ourselves into. We loved the first movie, and so we went to see the second. Uh, for those uninitiated, A Quiet Place is about uh, aliens landing on Earth, and uh, instead of them being able to see everybody, they can certainly hear everybody. And if you make noise, you're a goner. Uh, so that makes for a suspenseful thrilling movie where you're on the edge of your seat. But what we found helpful about A Quiet Place 2 is it was a sequel, but also a prequel. In that it was a sequel, yes, it's Quiet Place 2, but it had within it a story to tell about how these aliens came onto Earth that made sense of the first movie, made sense of the whole story which we were already finding ourselves in. Here's a loose connection. In a sense, the, the Old Testament is for us somewhat of a sequel in that we can better make sense of the Old Testament when we see and read it through Christ and the Gospels and what the apostles reflect on, on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and all that he has done, that the Old Testament starts to make better sense than if we read it before we knew all that. And yet the Old Testament's a prequel because it points up into the life and times of Jesus. And so Today we come to a passage in the Old Testament that is very much a prequel, very much paradigmatic for our own walk with Jesus, for our relationship with God. This chapter particularly is a little bit like a defining the relationship conversation that you might have with someone who you had a romantic connection with. This is like the Old Testament ancient Israelite version of changing your Facebook status and telling everybody about your relationship because today in Exodus chapter 24, we are going to see God's relationship with his people go public, be confirmed in a covenant. Now, we often say as Christians that we have a relationship with God, 
We don't often reflect on what do we actually mean by that? Well, today we get the chance to reflect on what it actually means to have a relationship with God. And so we're going to walk through this text and we're going to stop to smell the roses and see what certain verses in this chapter have to say for us along the way. So start with me in verse one of Exodus chapter four, where Moses uh, is still on the mountain hearing from God all the things that we heard last week from chapter 21 to 23. It says this, then he, that's God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And so God wants Moses and a few others, the the leaders, the representatives of his people, uh, his right-hand man, Aaron, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and some of the uh, elders of Israel to come up and meet with him on the mountain. He's inviting them to come up into his presence. And now that is significant if we read it in the context of where we've been thus far. We know that God, by his own uh, initiative, his own power and prerogative, he rescued his people out of Egypt. But then after rescuing them on the way through the wilderness, they grumbled and they complained and they remembered how awesome Egypt was, even though we know it wasn't. And yet God provided them manna and quail in the wilderness to the point where he came to Exodus 19 and said, hey, I've borne you on eagle's wings. I've risen, I've raised you up. Then in chapter 20, he said, I am the Lord, your God. And so at every point, God has been putting himself out there for his people. And here now we come to Exodus 24 and we read another invitation that he invites the representatives of these people to come up and be in his presence once again. And now this tells us something so profound and so simple that we'd probably ignore it and bypass it if we didn't stop to reflect on it. It tells us that God is a relational God who wants a relationship with his people. And that is crazy to consider, particularly because of the culture at the time. These Israelites have come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, there was somewhat of a pantheistic culture. That is that that every material thing, every created thing was seen to have a God behind it. The God of the Nile and the God of the frogs and all those kinds of things. And so this God, Israel's God, is saying not that like Egypt, where those gods needed to be appeased and the people needed to kowtow to them to try to win their favor, this God, Israel's God, wants to win over his people. It's the other way around. He wants a real relationship with these stubborn, hard-hearted people in a culture where it was people who were trying to win hard-hearted, stubborn gods. And it's also profound if we think about it even in our day today. To say that God wants a relationship with us, it is crazy in our world because we live in a culture that actually is not too dissimilar from ancient Egypt. My millennial generation, we love to say that we are spiritual but not religious. And so we adopt all these uh, kind of spiritual disciplines and yet use them for secular ends. Meditation, coloring books, yoga, mindfulness, breathing exercises, all sorts of Eastern mysticism and superstition. When you do that, your vision of who God is is skewed from him being a, a personal God to if we believe there is a God, he starts to blend in more to being an impersonal force. This is summed up in perhaps the the prototypical movie of my generation, Avatar, which 
still fittingly happens to be the highest grossing movie of all time. Uh, Avatar pivots around the, the battle between the uh, materialistic and uh, military and capital industrial complex versus the, the sweet native people of this planet, Pandora. And at the heart of this new world of Pandora is a tree, the home tree, the life source of the neural network of all of the created order. And connected to it is the tree of souls that taps into the spirit of the gods, if you will. And so Avatar represents a very pantheistic worldview that says even more than Egypt that actually these created things are gods themselves, that the universe is God, that the natural laws are gods, that every force is God. That is God, the universe. I remember going for a walk around Gardner's Creek in Burwood with Guy Mason recently. And as we were walking on past, we were chatting and a young woman was riding her bike and she pulled up to this big tree, laid the bike down and she started hugging the tree. I mean, it was, it was an impressive tree, but, but it was not that impressive. It was no home tree. It was no tree of souls. And yet that's a little bit of a picture of, of pantheism, that the universe is God. And now in our society, that, that belief is on the rise, but also uh, we still have a, a small minority of Australians who would call themselves atheists. And atheists are a bit of a paradox because atheists get really defensive and really angry and really passionate about a God who they say isn't actually there at all. And so atheism will typically mock God to say that he's just a, a sky fairy or a flying spaghetti monster as it may be. But when they do that, they're not so much mocking our God. They're not mocking the God of the Bible. They're mocking their own vision of God because the vision of God we see in the Bible is that God is not this impersonal force of pantheism, nor is he this kind of immoral, impersonal figure of atheism. God's not even this detached, lonely sovereign that, that Allah of Islam might be. No, we see that God is a person. That God is a, a personal God. That God has moral attributes and characteristics that we've seen described in his law in recent chapters. That this God has been in community forever in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That his pitch to the world and his activity in the world tells us that he wants a relationship with us, a personal relationship with us. He wants to be in relationship with you, someone he has made, someone he has fearfully and wonderfully knit together. It's even more accurate to say, not just that, that God wants a relationship with you, it's that God wants you to have a relationship with him. Because our relationship with God needs to occur on his terms, not on our terms. God doesn't fit into our schedule, we fit into his schedule. Exodus 20 to 23 has shown us that God doesn't kind of come in and buddy-buddy to us. No, we become his servants. And so you don't need to accept God as much as you need God to accept you. He is the one who has always been there. He is the one who is perfectly happy in his own community of the Godhead. He doesn't need us. We need him. And so God wants a relationship with you. But he says to us, this is how it will be. And this, we see this as we, as we go through Exodus 24, because Moses, the, the man of the people, he comes to the people and he speaks to them all the words that we saw last week, Exodus 21, 22, and 23. And then he tells them what God wants. 
And the people respond. They say in verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so here we have God inviting the people again into relationship with him. And as they respond to God's commands, they respond not individually, but collectively. And so not only does God want a relationship with you, God wants a relationship with us. Moses doesn't say, hey, Nadab, here's what God has for you. What do you say? Hey, Abihu, here's the agreement and arrangement that God wanted to have with you. And that his relationships with different people would take on different forms. No, God makes an agreement with the people together. And then they respond as one. Author David Guzik says, you do have a personal relationship with God. You don't have your own private agreement with him that contradicts the revealed words of the Lord. And that's true today too. We don't get to make up our own private and personal agreements with God according to how we want him to act or what he want, we want him to do for us or who he should be for us. No, you along with everybody else tuning in to their own local churches right now or visiting them in person, everybody through time and space, we come to God on his terms. We come to him as his people. We stand as his people together before him as one. And it's a Christianized version of believing that God is a sky fairy to believe that God has our own or makes a a private arrangement with us or a private agreement with us that might contradict what he has said to everybody in his word. And of course, we've probably all known people and I have known people who said, oh yes, that's good for you. But for me, you know, God's promised me this or or I have my own private agreement with God that this is going to happen in my future. And that can contradict the wisdom or the commands of God in the Word. It's amazingly coincidental that often people who have these private arrangements have them so that they can do immoral things that are specifically outlawed in the Word. It's just an incredible coincidence. But the reality is this, is that God wants a relationship with us, but He holds no partiality. No partiality for me as a pastor, no partiality for you on whatever you do, for rich, poor, young, old, black, white, White collar, blue collar, left or right, all people come to God on his terms. And this tells us just the essential nature of the church in our relationship with God. We're told that Christ died for the church. He died for a people, a collective. And it's popular to think that we can have a relationship with God apart from the people, apart from the church. But that vastly overestimates our own humility and our own ability to have clear convictions and thoughts of God unaffected by our own emotions and circumstances. Because the reality is that I myself are so prone and you yourself as well. We are prone to delusions about who God is, about how he relates to us. And so the church provides for us an essential service, an essential service that corrects us encourages us, builds us up, points us to Jesus when we're filled with doubt, reminds us that we have no condemnation in him when we're filled with shame, disciplines us if need be, when we veer off course. And so we need to relate to God as a part of his church, his community. And so Moses now tells this to the people and he needs to make it official. And when you make an agreement with God, it's serious. 
And so there is a, a ceremonial process that Moses goes through to confirm this agreement. He writes down the words of God, which is essentially the, the beginnings of the scriptures that we have today. And then he builds an altar and he builds 12 pillars to uh, mark the, the 12 tribes of Israel. He gets some of the young men of the community to offer sacrifices and, and offerings upon the altar on behalf of the people. And then he does something that looks very strange to us, if that didn't look strange already. He takes the blood of the sacrifices and he throws it on the altar. And then he takes what he's written down, which is now called the, the book of the covenant, and he reads it to the people and they agree again. And then in verse 8, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so he takes the blood and he throws some on the altar, but he also throws some on the people. And this is what makes the agreement particularly special because it's, it's, it's no longer a contract. This is not a contract where one side says, I'll do this if you do that. And then the other side thinks, oh, gee, that's great. Yep, I'll sign that contract because you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. No, this agreement is a covenant. And a covenant is a particular kind of binding agreement between people. In the Bible, a covenant is one particularly that essentially says, I'm going to do what I'm committing to do right now, whether you do that or not, whether you hold up your end of the bargain or not. This is why we call marriage a covenant, because in a marriage, the husband and wife stand before God and before us all, and they commit for better or worse, in health, but also in sickness, for richer or for poorer. Not just in the good times, not just when it's all going well, but also in the bad. And so if Jules gets Alzheimer's when she's older and she can no longer remember who I am, she's still mine and I am still hers in our marriage covenant. And bad examples of marriage in our particular, our culture's view of marriage with how willy-nilly they are in and out and you know, somebody can, can break the marital bond because they just decide they don't want it anymore. It skews our vision of what a covenant is. I mean, divorce feels like death. I know that's happened to people in our community. And it is awful to witness when someone breaks that covenant. But what's happening here is that God is saying, I want a relationship with you. I want a relationship with you where I'm going to open myself up to you. I'm going to pour myself out for you. And that the covenant agreement I make means that if you fail... If you cheat on me, if you chase after other gods, if God knows, uh, if, if they will uh, kind of uh, get hard-hearted again and forget about this agreement, and God knows that they will because we can read forward in the scriptures, God's saying, I will still be your God. I'm with you. I am the Lord, your God. You will be my people. And this is where the blood comes in. Because it's a covenant confirmed in blood. The blood highlights payment for sin. That at the very outset of this agreement, this covenant, there is a shedding of blood. There is a death in the people's place. And so the bull has died. The blood is sprinkled on the altar and on the people to purify them. And so it binds the, the God of the altar and it purifies the people that they might be able to make this commitment. Now, these people have known something of a covenant already. Because in the, the narrative of their story as God's people, they'll be able to uh, cast their minds back to, to Abraham, where a very 
meaningful covenant was made in Genesis chapter 15 between God and Abraham. And in that case, there's something amazing happens at that time because there with Abraham, a covenant ceremony is performed and there is blood, there's death, there's a sacrifice, but Abraham is asleep the whole time. And in that case, God makes the promises of the covenant and also commits himself to the other side of that covenant. That he is the one who he walks through the sacrifices on behalf of himself and the people. He binds himself to his own promises. And so that covenant with Abraham had continued to the point where it was that covenant that God remembered at the start of Exodus that led him to deliver his people out of Egypt. But we also know that it's a covenant that God even remembers today because that covenant continues down to today. The New Testament tells us that you and me can join that covenant of God with Abraham. Maybe you sang it as a kid, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. We we, we don't have any live music today because we're in my living room and that's why you just heard uh, my voice. But there is is a lot of incredible theology packaged in incredibly corny Christianese children's songs. And that's one of them, that you and I can become children of Abraham. We can become sons and daughters of God, that when God pointed Abraham to the stars, he was actually representing us in those stars. Because in Jesus, we can enter into that agreement that God will be our father, that we'll be part of his family, the family of Abraham. And so under that umbrella of this covenant with Abraham is this covenant that we read about in Exodus 24, the Mosaic covenant, which we know if we turn to the New Testament, was always pointing to Jesus. While the Abrahamic covenant was permanent and continues today, the Mosaic covenant was temporary. It was a guardian for us that pointed us to Jesus and therefore was fulfilled in him. We read about what's happening here uh, throughout this ceremony uh, and in the tabernacles in the, in the chapters later in Exodus in the book of Hebrews. It says this in Hebrews 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so in the blood of Christ, in Christ's death on the cross, you and I are sprinkled just like them. You and I can come to God. You and I can enter into a covenant with him. You and I can be in relationship with the living God through Christ. And so in this section, We see that God wants a relationship with us. God wants a relationship with us on his terms. God wants a relationship with us together with all his people. And to certify that relationship, you need to be sprinkled with blood, the blood of Christ. And so to have a real living, eternal relationship with God, you don't need perfect theology. You need Christ. You don't need a perfect moral record. You need Christ. You don't need a perfectly looking religious family. You need Christ. You don't need to know all the Christian lingo of of churchianity. You need Christ. You don't need an impressive amount of faith or charismatic giftedness. You need Christ. And if you have Christ, you have all you need. Christ allows us to come into relationship with God. 
And so here in the text, the ceremony takes place, the covenant is confirmed, the people have accepted the terms. And now the leaders that God invited up in verse 1 and 2 start making their trek up the mountain. And when they do so, they see something incredible. Verse verse 9, I should say. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And so these leaders, we're told, see God. Now, we need to nuance that a little bit because in a few weeks, we'll turn to some verses later in Exodus and see that God himself says, no one can see God and live. And so I'm sure this is recorded for us because they live. It's incredible. But They perhaps also don't fully see God, rather see a vision of God's throne, particularly the base of God's throne where his feet are. And around it is a a pavement of sapphire stone, which is similar to visions uh, that we read about in the book of Ezekiel. And what they experience physically on that mountain, we're told in the New Testament that actually becomes paradynamic, dynamic again for us in how we are to embody the Spirit of God in our own lives. Because 1 John says something similar to later on in Exodus. It says no one has ever seen God. But then he adds adds something about how we should live in light of that. He says in 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so this moment of confirming the covenant and seeing this vision of God's feet becomes for us a challenge. No one can see God. But God's people have been set up in such a way that we might live in response to who God is for us and what God has done for us, that people see God through us, that people experience God's love through us, God's character through us, God's compassion through us. And so our call as we enter into a relationship with God is not just to embody the moral requirements that we have seen in recent chapters in the law in the pages of Exodus, but to embody this hospitable spirit that we've seen in God throughout Exodus of inviting people to himself, of his compassion, of his provision, of his love for his people. And so if we are his people, if the spirit abides in us, then we are going to be a people who has the same posture that God has toward us. We are going to have it toward others. Author Francis Schaeffer once wrote, after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. And so the church, those in relationship with God, God's people, we are called to love one another in a profound way, not just in convenient ways or safe ways or traditional ways or common ways, in Christ-like ways. The love of the church is the most effective apologetic for people to see God, to experience God, because it makes him visible. And there's a connection here with the law, because in the book of Galatians, it says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so for us, as this Mosaic covenant is completed or fulfilled in Christ, The law remains for us a pointer to Jesus and to the love that we might be able to display in our own lives. 
having experienced his cleansing blood and come into relationship with God, our job is to bring others into that relationship by pointing them there through how we love. And so as remarkable as this moment in Exodus 24 will have been, that they beheld God. Read the next verse and it gets even better. Verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so the leaders see God and then they share a meal with God. And this is an important element of the covenant because blood was necessary to confirm the agreement. But this isn't some kind of impersonal corporate business deal going down here where they just shake hands and it's done. No, a meal was needed to highlight that this covenant brings the two parties, people and God, together in an intimate way. Because sharing a meal together, it signifies friendship, intimacy, connectedness. But to share a meal with someone is, in a sense, to unite yourself with them. This is exactly why Jesus got in so much trouble, because the Pharisees pointed out that, hey, this guy shares meals. He eats with sinners, with tax collectors, because to share a meal was so significant. And this meal in Exodus 24 is a prequel to something you and I will experience in our own relationship with God. Because this is where our relationship is going. We, his people, are heading toward a meal with God, a marriage supper. The final book of the Bible, Revelation 19, in one of the final chapters, chapter 19, recounts for us this vision of the end. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And then in verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, that is you. You are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Having had your life cleansed, purified by the blood of Jesus, we are invited now to the marriage of the church and Christ Himself. That The covenant that Christ has bound himself to us by, in his death, purifies us and assures us that we are going to be with him forever. And to help look forward to that meal on that day, and to help look back to this meal on this day, and the Passover that we saw previously in the book of Exodus, in the life of Jesus, we get a foretaste. Because the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples, a meal that fulfilled the Passover and a meal that pointed forward to the marriage supper of the lamb. Notice in Luke 22, the words of Jesus, he took bread when he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we get to share this covenant meal every time we share in communion as God's people that like Exodus 24, there's blood, And there's a meal. And every time we take communion, we remind ourselves of the blood, the blood of Christ, which not like the bull of Exodus, but the perfect body and unblemished blood of Christ was given for us in our place. And so every time we take communion, it is like a covenant renewal ceremony where we renew our vows and remember Jesus. And so we're going to do that now. It is fitting at the end of this chapter that we celebrate communion together. Because today we've seen that we have a relationship with God. And that's amazing. 
that we can have a relationship with God. Don't let your familiarity with that phrase fool you. That God wants to have a relationship with us. And he wants to have a relationship with us through the blood of Christ. And so we are now invited to partake by faith of that body and that blood. Some of you today have had relationships that have let you down, whether they be friendships, whether they be marriages, whether they be relationships that didn't eventuate. Well, God today tells us that he will never let us down, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he has bound himself to us and that he is bringing us to be married to him in eternity. You know, some of you today have come to God on your own terms, bargaining with God for things that he needs to do for you so that you might continue along in your relationship with him. Now, God today shows that you need to submit to him, that you need to submit all of your life to him and that you need to come to God on his terms. Some of you today perhaps might be feeling that actually in thinking that you've come to God, you've actually really come to the things around him and not him himself a successful life, a religious family, a theologically sound mind. God today shows us that we can only come to him in Christ, that we can only come to him forsaking our own righteousness, forsaking whatever other circumstances we put after the plus sign. No, we can only come with Christ, in Christ. And when we have Christ, we come fully, confidently and assured that we will be with God forever. And so let me pray now before we share in this meal together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you want a relationship with us and that you have done so much to bring us to yourself because you have sent your one and only son to live for us, die for us and rise again, that his blood might be sprinkled upon us and we might be able to come to you confidently, assuredly that we can have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you don't uh, keep us at a distance, but you bring us close. And you, would do, you do that now as we come before you in communion, as we see in Exodus as the elders and the representatives of your people, and that even more than them do we know intimacy with you. And we know that this is but a foretaste of the intimacy we will have on the last day. And so, Lord, help us live lives in light of that reality. Help us live lives knowing that you have fulfilled the law, that you have uh, lived life in our place, that you have purified us by your blood, and therefore we can display you to the world through living lives of love. And Lord, help us keep trusting you until we see you face to face. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.